right, we're back into 2 Samuel again this morning. As you find your place there, we're going to be in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Campaigning in 1936, Franklin D. Roosevelt had to prepare a speech to deliver in Pittsburgh on the eve of the election. But four years earlier, he had spoken in that city advocating drastic restraint in government spending. Now, four years later, he wanted to defend government spending. And he contemplated and how he could do this. And he asked an advisor, Sam Rosenman, to figure out some way of making this about face without appearing too inconsistent in his policies. And Roseman uh, thought it over for a few days and finally told him, I think, Mr. President, that I found a way out deny that you made a speech in Pittsburgh in 1932. That was his advice. Every leader has a temptation to not follow through with what they have said or promised earlier. I'm sure it would have been easier in the 30s for a politician to to really say that. Can you imagine, you know, those present for a speech like that would have been a few writers from a newspaper or so, and and those in the audience, and so there was no YouTube, there was no Twitter, there was no instant news out there, and so the temptation might have been really strong for him. I suppose King David could have been tempted that same way, right? Years earlier, as we will see this morning, King Saul sent for David, not to honor him, but to kill him. We've looked at that already. We've talked about that a little bit. And, he, and as he escaped, his wife, Michael, helped him leave the house. And he escapes into the fields, and he meets Jonathan there, devising a plan of figuring out what's going to happen here. And Jonathan explains that he would go get information from his father, King Saul. And on that field, those two make a covenant together. No other human was present, at least not my reading from the text, but God was there. He heard what was discussed, and they swore to him that they would fulfill their covenant promises. And we learned this morning that God will fulfill his covenant with his king, and this king will fulfill his covenant with Jonathan. So here's the main idea this morning. God blesses his covenant king and the covenant king blesses others. I don't think, ah, there it is, yes. And there's three points to the sermon here, okay? First, all kingdoms belong to the king. A king submitted to God will show God's loving kindness. And third, the kindness of a king and those who despise it. So if you do take notes, the first and the third are shorter points. Point number two is just gold, chapter nine. So we're gonna go through each chapter. Each chapter is a point, okay? And as we come to these chapters, as you turn there to Samuel 9, I want you uh, in a minute to put your finger there because I'm going to take you to another passage. Because in this chapters, these chapters, really chapters 8 and 10, really kind of uh, are are explained even further in Psalm chapter 2. And and I didn't see this on my own, but Pastor Tim Chester and his commentary helped me to understand this. Psalm 2 seems to be a great commentary to explain what's happening in chapter 8 and chapter 10. In Psalm 2, it looks forward to the ultimate king, the Lord Jesus Christ. But Psalm 2 is, is most frequently co- quoted. It's the, it's the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament. 
So put your finger on first, or Second Samuel 8, turn over to Psalm 2. And I want to read that psalm before we look at our passage and see if you can see these similarities and, and, and put that back in your mind as we walk through these chapters. Psalm chapter 2. It's a short psalm, just 12 verses. Follow with me as I read. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this psalm starts with the, this, the kings of the earth rebelling against the Lord and his anointed. And then he reaffirms his commitment to the king in verse 6. And then, and then God says, and as we looked at in verse 8 and 9, ask of me and I will give the nations a heritage. And I think we'll see this play out in, in chapter 8 and chapter 10. This is the pattern we see in these verses. So I hope it's, it's helpful to use. Now turn back to 2 Samuel 8. We're going to go through chapter 8 here in point 1. And I'm going to do my best to pronounce these names. I don't know why they just didn't name their kids Bill and Bob. I mean, you'll find out. 2 Samuel 8. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Megatheth Amma out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab. And he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rebob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and from Barothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadiazar, Toi sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadiazar and defeated him, for Hadiazar had, had often been at war with Toi. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, and Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadiazar, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. 
So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zerah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Elihud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Atab, and Ahimelech, the son of Abithiar, were priests, and Sarah was secretary. And Benah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites, and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. So point number one, all kingdoms belong to the king. Chapter 8 brings together the events from across David's reign to demonstrate what the narrator said in chapter 7. If you remember chapter 7, verse 9, that God has cut off all of David's enemies. And the organizing principle that we see in chapter 8 is not chronology of this and this and this. No, it's geography. That's the point of all this chapter, to, to say that David's victory was from the west, Philistia, to the east, Moab, to the north, Aram, and to the south, Edom. He's, he's trying to convey, he, he conquered all directions, the total dominion of King David on God's enemies. But if we're honest, and if you paid attention when we read this chapter, it's a difficult chapter to read. King David executes two-thirds of the Moabites, and it's, it's gruesome. They don't make this into kids' films. And when we read this violence in the pages of the Bible, we need to respond carefully. Our job as humble Bible readers is to learn from the text of Scripture and not to make independent moral judgments against it. In the context of the generally positive presentation of David's reign in this chapter, we need to see that in this case, David's actions against the Moabites seem to be approved. John Calvin captures the tone of the text. He says, the stringency which David exercised against the Moabites ought not to be considered cruelty, but to be the just judgment of God, since they had abused his long patience and had mocked him. What we read in chapter 8 is David acting as God's agent in bringing just judgment to those that are opposed to God. It is repeated in this chapter to strike down. In this we understand that those who reject David's rule as king are not simply rejecting a human king, friends. They are rejecting God. God placed him there. And this is essentially what we just read in Psalm 2, verse 2. David is acting as if this agent of God himself. He is the anointed, the king. Now, I don't, I don't think we need to spend our time going through the details of this battle, so, but there's three things I want to mention, and then we'll move on to point number two. First, did you notice in verse 13, and David made a name for himself. Now, this is not self-promotion. If you remember back into chapter 7, verse 9, he says, And I have been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies before you, and I will make your name great, like the great ones of the earth. So this is not David propping himself up. No, this is a fulfillment of what God said he would do. And what we learn from that, friends, is God is trustworthy. When God says what he's going to do, he's going to do it. Take it to the bank, friends. Write it down. God can be trusted. That's what we learn from this. In verse 14, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. 
David was not about what he did for God, but what God did for David. David would not build a house for God, right? We looked at that last week. No, God would build a house for David, a dynasty, a legacy. It was what God was doing through David. So he made a name for himself. Second, God will fulfill his promises. Second Samuel 7 last week says, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them. And what we read in chapter 8 is this, this place is ever expanding. The, prom, the promise that was given to Abraham in Genesis 12, David extends that even more for God's people with these victories. And the third thing we notice is David will execute justice. Verse 15, so David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. It says in 1 Kings 10.19 of David's son Solomon, says, because the Lord loved Israel forever, he made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. This was the job of those that were in this position as king. The king was to reign over the kingdom, and the king was to bring justice and righteousness and equity to the people. And that's what we read here in verse 15. And, and you need to log this away, because next week, we'll see that David doesn't do this. He is a sinner. It is a, it's a hard section to read next week. And, and this seems to be the case with every human. You know, when we sing songs like His Mercy is More, friends, I sing that because that gives me the opportunity to preach. If I don't believe, if I don't understand God's mercy, I can't get in front of God's people to declare God's word because, newsflash, I'm a sinner. If you don't believe me, ask my wife and kids. I sin. I need his mercy. And, and, and we want David to be this king that executes righteousness and justice, but he turns in on himself. We, we will see that. We will finish in chapter 10, and next week, Lord willing, we'll see it right away in verse 1 of chapter 11. He fades away from this justice. And, and we do too. When we are left to ourselves, to walk by ourselves, to live for ourselves, we turn in on ourselves. We want to do what we want to do. But God intends for us as Christians to be different than the world. And, and not different like we have a new language, Christianese, and all these special words or some special handshake. No different, set apart. As holy, beloved saints. Our job as Christians is to reflect the character of God in this world. You have a job. We have a job to do when we leave this place. When you, friends, we come in here to rest from the week, but then when we go back out there, our job as Christians is to reflect God. And we need his help. We reflect God by having a concern for justice. That's important for Christians. That people are treated fairly. And there's equity. And we seek the welfare of people, not just ourselves and our family, but others that we come in contact with. And so I would encourage us as a church to live this way. We should be holy, set apart, special from the world. And the only way we can do this is with God's help.
So that's point number one. We've seen the kingdoms belong to one true king. Point number two, a king submitted to God will show God's loving kindness. Chapter nine, verse one. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And now there was a servant of the house of Saul. His name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there, any, is there, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there, was, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel of Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. There is a, a word, I'm going to pause there. There's a word that's mentioned three times in those uh, couple verses and then even in verse 7. And that word is kindness. Kindness here is the Hebrew word hesed. Maybe there's other pronunciations there. Hesed is, is, is devoted love promised with a covenant. You see this word all throughout the book of Ruth. That's really what Ruth is about. One commentator said, Hesed is the love that is willing to commit itself to another by making its promise a matter of solemn record. It's a covenant love. So when David mentions this, he wants to show this kindness for Jonathan's sake, we know that he's speaking of covenant promises that he made to Jonathan that I referenced earlier in, in 1 Samuel 20, verse 15. Let me read the verse. And he says to him, do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever. This is Jonathan speaking to David. When the Lord cuts off every one of your enemies of David from the face of the earth, imploring David, be faithful to my house, to my people, to my line. And here in, in 2 Samuel 9, after reading of the Lord cutting off every one of David's enemies, David is preparing to fulfill that pledge. He's not going to deny he made that covenant. He's going to fulfill it. You remember, there's no other human that, that I can tell that was there. But God was there. David knows what he said. And he was going to be faithful to his word to Jonathan. David's officials find this, this Ziba and they're connected to Saul's family. And you need to understand there's been about 15 to 20 years since this transpired between David and, and uh, Jonathan. But, but this promise... This kindness that's motivating David, he seeks out someone in the, in the line of Jonathan. There was nothing in this covenant made with Jonathan that would expire after an amount of time. There wasn't a clause for David to say, I, I don't have to do this anymore. And I'm sure David's people are, are thinking, what are you doing? You don't do this. But David's a man of his word, and he's going to keep that covenant. And so this story, just like the chapter last week, presses upon us the significance of keeping your covenants. And again, I don't think our world understands this. One author that I came across, actually two authors, mentioned the same thing this week, of a movie, and I've never seen it, and so I'm not endorsing it, but Out of Africa... Anyone ever seen that? Years ago, Meryl Streep, Robert Redford, they're talking at a bench. Apparently, they're in love. She wants him to marry her. And, and his response is, do you think I'll love you more because of a piece of paper? I thought, well, this, that definitely fits in our culture. 
right? I mean, that's the understanding today. A covenant to people is, is just a piece of paper. It's a formality. A, it's, a, it's a hoop to jump through. It's, it's some way to get more taxes to not have to pay, right? I mean, let's just do it that way. That's the world's viewpoint. But a marriage covenant never claims to regulate love's intensity, but it's security. What the world doesn't see is that a love that truly loves is more than willing to bind itself. It's more than willing to promise. It's more than willing to and gladly obligates itself to sign a paper so that both can understand and stand securely in that love that they're committed to. So we don't keep our covenants because we feel like it. We keep our covenants because we promise to. God keeps his covenant because he promised to. You know, just on this note of marriage, John Piper was asked years ago when someone asked him if they had married the right person. And John Piper wisely said, look at the name on your marriage certificate. It's how you find out if you married the right person. (laughs) Friends, you need to log that away and counsel people that you come in contact with. As divorce rates just skyrocket, if you want to know if you're married to the right person, look at the document. You committed to them to be faithful when it was going really well and when it's really hard. And what we're reading here is David's commitment on a different level to Jonathan and his line. When everyone else is saying, This is foolish. Look at verse 6. I'm going to mispronounce this name, and it's in there like 20 times. Mephibosheth, I got it right. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that, that you should regard, show regard for a dead dog such as I? And the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to the house I will have given to your master's grandson. It should be son there, just so you know. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's son may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your grandsons, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And <laughs> that guy had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. And he lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. What the narrator is saying is Mephibosheth's place was not to grovel like a servant at the king's feet but to sit at the table 
like one of the king's sons. Something that was mentioned four times. See, the narrator's wanting us to pick up on something here. What David is doing is going far beyond the bare requirement of the covenant that he made with Jonathan years ago. David doesn't just spare his life, he heaps goodness on top of him. He doesn't protect his life, he restores his inheritance. He doesn't just save his life from the shadow of death, no, he prepares a table for him that he will always eat at. And and this is significant for the king to perform all this. Why? Because the name of the game then was when a new dynasty came into reign, they were to eliminate the former king's family, not move them, kill them, so that there would be no other former claim to the throne. Can you imagine David's advisors? What are you doing? You're the king. Can you imagine why he trembled when he came before the king? While he fell on his face because he's realizing this is it. It's been some time. David's been king. This is the end. I'm dead. My kids are dead. And this is what he hears. Do you see the gospel in this? Can you see what God wants us to understand in this chapter? It was not just happenstance that 2 Samuel 9 is just put in here. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us that why we will still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have not been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Galatians 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit and the Son in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Friends, you will only appreciate what David does here in 2 Samuel 9 when you fully understand the source of that love. You, you, you will not understand this chapter and what he's doing unless you understand Romans 5 and Galatians 4. I'm almost certain that Paul knows this chapter as he's writing to these churches. You know, the Bible was not written in some silo. And chapters like this are not meant to be interpreted all by themselves. It's in, it's in this book. 
as Pastor Chris talked about in, in the equipping class, of which you need to be at, friends. God is the author of the Scriptures, and He's wanting us to understand something. Why we were still weak. While you were still weak. While we were still sinners. While we were His enemies. God showed His love for us so that we would receive adoption as sons. And to understand the magnitude of God's love for us is to realize that He has no business loving us. And to read this chapter as a Christian is to understand that we are Jonathan's son. I'm going to stop saying it. There is absolutely no reason why we should eat at the king's table. This story is about us. David's response is a picture of Christ's response to those who bow to him in faith. He says, first, don't be afraid. Then you can eat at my table and you'll be my son. I mean, isn't this amazing, friends? Perhaps, friend, you came this morning, you're not a Christian, and you're realizing afresh that I'm not a Christian. I, I, don't, I don't know if I believe this. And Jesus says, come and bow yourself and your life to me and do not be afraid. I do not intend harm but for good for you. David said, do not fear, for I will show you kindness. This hesed love, covenant love. And the same is said of God to us, friends. Do not fear. Jesus came to show you kindness. And you can be made new. But not only that, he says, come and eat at my table. Jonathan's son shall always eat at my table, David says. Friend, when you bow the knee to God in salvation through faith alone and grace alone, you're not merely tolerated by God. You're not just given a few morsels and provisions to get by. No, you're invited into relationship with the God of the universe. You're invited to the table. You can sit at God's table forever. You know, eating a meal with someone is significant, even in our culture. To be invited over and sit around someone's table is, is a big deal. It's a symbol, a powerful symbol of friendship. And friend, when you become a Christian, when you follow God, you aren't set aside. You're brought to his table with him. And you're welcomed and you're loved. And it's forever. There's nothing you can do later to get kicked off the table. Because you did nothing to get there. God did it. And you're welcomed and you're loved. You know, I thought of one way that, I mean, we can't save people, but this applies to us. And I want to, just, I want to single out high school students because I remember high school. Yes, I'm old, but I remember high school. 
You know, do you want to be a picture, a small picture of, of what Christ has done for us? Then when you're sitting around a table at lunch, show kindness to others and invite them to the table. I don't know about you, but I stuck out my whole high school time. I was this tall as a 16-year-old. And I had to find a place somewhere to eat. The most stressful time for me in high school. And a picture, one little small picture, this isn't the gospel, friends, this is showing kindness to someone, is to invite them into the table. Those that are just disregarded. Jonathan's son was disregarded. Lame in his feet, he couldn't do anything. And David shows this kindness to him. And the last thing he says is, you become my son. I mean, he's securing a spot at the table. And then he says, like one of the king's sons, verse 11. And, and by that, the, the narrator is saying he's treated like royalty. He was a nobody from nowhere, lame in his feet. He couldn't do anything. He needed help always. And David brings him in and treats him like a son. He's now family. And is that not a picture of salvation, friends? And this is huge news for us, right? I mean, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us is seen here in the Old Testament, page 332, 2 Samuel 9. It's here. The gospel's here. We are all spiritually crippled with no service that we can offer Jesus. And he goes, and he saves us, and he brings us to the table. I mean, we would just love to be known by God, but through Jesus, we, make, we are made his son and daughter. We are in Christ, in God's son, and that means we are loved by God the Father with the same love that he has for his son. If that doesn't melt your brain, you're not listening. He loves us. God the Father loves us with the same love that he loves his son, Jesus. I mean, we're utterly, we can't do anything to get this. There's nothing good in ourselves and we recognize this. I can't get over this. Have you gotten over it? Perhaps you don't understand it yet. This is literally the best news in the world. Do you show kindness to others as God has showed his undeserved kindness to you? Friend, if you're a Christian here this morning and you don't talk with anyone about the gospel, you're hoarding it to yourself. You're a hoarder. You have the best news in the world the best thing that has happened to you and we need to share it with others. Even if our friends and family don't make a profession of faith, our instinct should be the same in our life to show kindness, to extend grace to others, the same loving kindness that God has expressed to us. We can, we can show that to others. Is that our instinct here at EBC? Is that the impulse that we have as a, as a, as a family here? 
to show kindness to others? Or is it just about us? You know, as a church, I think we need to grow in this area. I think we always need to grow. Because it's not just here on Sundays, it's when we leave as the church. In our lives, in our homes, in our neighborhoods. You know, I'll I'll just speak candidly. We need a a deacon really to, to step up and do this in a service for the church of kindness and care, not only to our members, but to those on the outside. To serve. To take what we understand here in 2 Samuel 9 and all that we see in the New Testament and to display that as the heart of Christ to those that we come in contact with. We should never get, this should never get old for us as Christians. Just passing on of what, the, what God has done for us in kindness through Jesus Christ. We should always be amazed. And we should be eager to share this and to show tangible ways of, of being kind and loving to others. And when we do this, we display the heart of God. And, and we can only do this with God's help. You can't muster this up on your own. Well, third is chapter 10. The kindness of a king and those who despise it. The first response to God's king back in Psalm 2 is to serve him and to find refuge in him. And, and, and really, the, the psalmist is saying that's a smart decision. That's the right response. The second option is to despise the king and to scorn his offer. And, and if you remember back in Psalm 2, the kings of the earth say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So what he's saying is they chose option two. They chose poorly. And that, that leads to destruction. Look at verse, chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the king of Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, and his, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father, and David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. What we read here again is that word kindness. Hesed, covenant love. He's, he's showing love again to this king to the house of Nahash, the Ammonite king. But the political advisors in this, for them, Hanan, they believe it's a, it's a trap. Verse three, the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their Lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he's honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? And so Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and returned. Their response is to reject the kindness of the king, to despise it. And then they embarrass his men. They shave off half their beards and cut off their clothes that expose their backsides. David does his best to minimize the embarrassment. This is not a schoolyard prank. This is a serious incident. And and I just need to note, just so you're aware, the Bible says that beards are a good thing. And some of you men need to catch up. Log that away. Verse 6, when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth-Roheb and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers and the king of Maacah with a thousand men and the men of Toab, 12,000 men. 
And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men and the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate and the Syrians of Zobah and Rehobab, Rehob and the men of Tob and, and Maacah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him and both, and both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. And the rest of, the, of his men he put in charge of Abiashah, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God and may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Syrians and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. Just to note here, whether we're comfortable or not with it, Joab is teaching us some theology. If you remember a few chapters back, Joab doesn't seem like a guy you'd want to emulate. But even thugs can teach us something about God. And Joab had faith in God. And he encourages the men also to have faith in God, verses 11 and 12. God may deliver us or he may not, but whatever he does, he is right and he is good, he's saying. It echoes back, at least for me, back to Esther. Before Esther goes before the king, right? If I perish, I perish. Essentially, she was displaying her trust in God. And that's what we read here from Joab. Verse 15, but when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together and had Eazar sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobach and the commander of the army of Hadiazar in their head. And when it was told, David had gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadiazar saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. What we see here is the foolishness of the Syrians. And, and the chapter ends with the servants of Hadiazar coming to their senses and seeking peace. Remember Psalm 2, verse 12, Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Zobah wises up and the people and they make peace with Israel. And they're not killed. But we see the Ammonites scorn God's king and they're defeated. The Syrians join the rebellion and they're defeated twice. The story continues. This story continues to echo Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But the king will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The psalmist is echoing again all that's happened here in chapter 10. God will have his way against his enemies. We need to end here. We need to understand, friends, that God's rule, Christ's rule, is good news for the world. We're going to sing in a couple months, joy to the world. You know, the, this is off tangent, off my notes, but, I, you know, we see commercials. I think it was for the World Cup. 
And the commercial was joy to the world, you know, Christmas. And I thought, you have no idea what that means. It is joy. The king has come. It is a good thing. It's good news for the world. But to reject his rule in your life, friends, that's bad. That's bad news. It will not end well. Romans 2, or do you presume in the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God is delaying judgment this morning because of his kindness to you, my friend. If you are not trusting in Christ, you will not always have all time to repent. And I want to encourage you again, friends, to turn from yourself and to turn to him. You shouldn't show contempt for God's patience with you this morning. See, the king of the Ammonites here, he did. And God's judgment came. So don't overestimate God's patience with you, friend. Today is the day of salvation. Repent of your sins and trust in him alone. And Christians here this morning, I hope you're refreshed and remember the gospel again that that saved you. You know, as we read in chapter 9, I I would encourage you to read again chapter 9 and meditate it on this afternoon and talk about it around the lunch table with family and friends. It's a beautiful chapter that just encapsulates the magnificence of Christ's love because we see it fulfilled in the New Testament. A Dutch theologian, Wilhelmus Brekel, explained how our entire salvation is bathed in his love. I'm going to end with this. Love was the origin of eternal election. Love sent Jesus into the world to be their surety. Love drew them out of the world to him, translating them into the kingdom of his love. Love radiates continually upon them. Love perseveres them. Love brings them to glory. And love engenders a perfect union with and the love for him. God does that for the Christian. Will you pray with me? Father, we stand in awe of the good news of Jesus Christ coming to earth to save wretched sinners like myself. We are unworthy of your love, and yet you have set your affection on us, and you've given us faith to believe in you, and you've rescued us from the plight of our sin. God, we praise you for salvation. We praise you that your word guides us and reforms us and encourages us and teaches us and moves us to love you and to serve you for your glory. I pray that you would take your word now and plant it deep within our souls. I pray that we, pray that we would leave this morning rejoicing in what Christ has done for us and his goodness to us and dying for us on the cross. And may we give you all the honor and glory for what you do. We pray this in your name. Amen.